If you all have a Bible, if you want to turn to uh, Ephesians, we're going to pick up again on working our way through Ephesians 4, a series we've entitled Our New Identity in Christ. This is sermon number two. So last week we began talking about what does it mean to be a Christian. And we said that, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus only came for sick people. (laughs) And so that puts us in a certain category, the lost, the sick, because he said those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Jesus says, I didn't come, he didn't come here to earth to call the righteous, those that saw no need for him, but sinners to repentance. That's Mark 2.17. So if you want to come under the care of the great physician, if you see that you're sick and you want to come under the care of the great physician, first thing we said is you have got to see that you have a need, that you've got to see that I am a guilty, hell-bound sinner, and it is hopeless for me to try to help myself or bring myself up to a level that God will accept me. It won't happen. And the second thing we got said, you have to see that there's a remedy, though, for your sickness, and it's on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got all that past when we were sinners. All that past has got to be, that penalty has to be paid for our lives, and he took our place, and he took that penalty that was coming our way. It fell on him. And that's something we should be eternally grateful for. But not only that, that old sinful nature has to be dealt with. Because just to deal with the penalty and not deal with our nature wouldn't really be freedom. It wouldn't really be a gospel or good news. So we need to see that. And we also need to see if you're going to come to a great physician, that repentance has to be involved. And like any physician, you have to submit to their care. And we're saying that that's really what repentance and faith is all about. Jesus has to be not just our Savior, not just a hell insurance policy, but he must be the Lord of our life. And that's where we've changed from saying, Lord, I'm going to do what I want to do, and we're saying, Lord, just I'll do whatever you want me to do. You're my Lord and Savior. I owe you everything for what you've done for me on the cross. So once you do that, once that change has taken place, once you submit yourself, you see your need and you've repented and exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a change takes place. And you become new. And we quoted the scripture, we've quoted a lot, if any man, any of us, be in Christ, we're new creations. He is a new creation. Old things, that old sinful nature, that old way, it's passed away. And he says, behold, look, look, all things have become new. You've got to see that, he's saying. Behold, all things are become new. So he says, if any man be in Christ. And in Christ means we are in union with him. We're united with him. And it's just like a one flesh relationship between a husband and wife. And so God has given us that marriage relationship. So not only for our own benefit, but also it helps us understand our relationship with him. It does. We should be in Ephesians 4. Just look over one chapter. I'd like to just look at this because this is a tremendous thing. And look in chapter 5, beginning in verse 28, at what Paul says. So he begins talking about husband and wives. Ephesians 5.28, so ought men, it's an ought, they should, to love their wives as themselves, as their own bodies. He that loves his wife, he does love himself. For no man has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord does the church. And look what he says here in verse 30. For we, that is you and I, are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are totally united with him. Verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And he says, that's a great mystery. But listen, he says in verse 32, I'm saying that concerning Christ and the church. So we need the, we've got to see we are united to the Lord in a special way, just like a husband and wife are one flesh. And he cares for us in that way. And we are one spirit with the Lord. He lives in us. He's part of us. We're married to him. Got to let that sink in. And like I said, when you're married, your husband and wife, my wife had debt when I married her. I was out of debt and I was in debt when I married her because the way that union works, everything one has, the other has, right? And so Jesus took our sin, but we get his righteousness just like a married couple would. She didn't marry me for my money. I didn't really bring much of that in there, but... It's all worked out. 
But I'm going to quote again, read again that quote of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I just think it's worth hearing again. Listen to what he said. He said, what makes a man a Christian is that he has been born again. He has been given a new nature. He is a new creation. He is altogether different than he was before. And I'm saying, do, do we believe that? Do we really believe that we are altogether different than we were before we ever came to the Lord and knew the Lord? Do we really see ourselves as different than before? Because the whole message of last time is you have got to see that identity before you'll live it. If you don't believe it, if you don't see it, then you probably won't live any differently. And the devil will continually be able to snare you and get you to fall and convince you that no change has taken place. He'll get you unsettled as far as the assurance of your salvation. You've got to see that God has done something for you. You have a new identity. In 1 John 3, 1, he says, Behold, there's that word again. Behold, what manner of love. We have to trust in our Father's love for us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. He's lavished us on us. What? That we are called the sons of God. We've got to see that and embrace it and believe it because of what the Lord says. So do you see yourself today sitting here? Do you see yourself as a son of God? Or are you still struggling? Well, maybe I'm a son of the devil. Because what you believe is the way you will live. We're in chapter 4, kind of in the middle of it. But Paul took three whole chapters. He doesn't tell the Ephesians to do a single thing. And that's kind of the way he would write Romans, the way he did with Colossians. It's the way God operates this. He says, you've got to know who you are, understand your identity, what I've done for you, and then on the basis of that, then, then act. Then I'll tell you what to do. And so in those first three chapters, to sum it all up, in about five different ways, he says, you've got to see that you've been bought, you're under, you're, you're under the blood, your sins have been paid for, we've been adopted as his children, which means we have a brand new family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Jeremiah, they are your brothers. And all the great women are your sisters that you read about in the Bible. We have a brand new family that will one day all be united. And it'll be a glorious time. It'll be a glorious supper. And not only that, he says, you have direct access to the Father in prayer. We didn't have that before as sinners. It says, God does not hear the prayer of sinners. But now, guess what? Direct access to that throne through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he's put his Holy Spirit inside of us, changed our nature, and he's given us the power that we can live above sin. We don't have to live in sin. No sin. We should have, it says, actually, in Romans 6, dominion over sin. And he ends in that third chapter by talking about that we can know the love of Christ. No ordinary love. Boy, you know, you think your mom really loves you. I mean, man, I don't care how much you love, she loves you. This is a love, he says, that passes understanding. We'll forever, through all eternity, be learning more of his love for us. And that'll really be a blessing. And so he says, hey, since that's true of us, all we should walk accordingly. There should be a change in the way we carry ourselves. So let's go back to chapter 4, verse 1. So Paul is saying, we said that therefore there in verse 1 of chapter 4 is pointing back to all of what I just told you about, he said, for three chapters. Because all of that is true with us. How we stand in the Lord. He says, therefore I, I'm a prisoner of the Lord telling you this, but I beg you, he says, I beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith you are called. He's saying, listen, we have a name. Our new name is Christian. And he says, we need to walk worthy of that name that God has given us. We need to walk worthy. And so he begins to tell them there in those first few verses what that change will involve. When you walk worthy of the vocation you're called, he says, you'll walk with all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you know, verse 3 there, that word endeavoring means to make every effort. In other words, what he's asking us to do there is not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of work. And what is it that's not easy? Look what it says in verse 2. We have to walk in humility, in lowliness. Is what, that's the word for humility. And meekness, 
long-suffering, and forbearing. Those are all things we have to do with one another in this church. Those are all things that relate to how we are going to have to deal with each other. And I'll say to put verse 2 into practice, guess what's going to have to be checked at the door? Our pride. And I'm saying that sounds like nothing. It is very hard for all of us to do. Very hard. That is very hard what he has there in his first few verses. But we need to remember one thing. He's saying forbearing one another. That means to regard with tolerance. We need to remember that we are all, every one of us in here, every single one of us in here is a work in progress. We will all intentionally or unintentionally do things that offend one another. And so we'll talk about this Wednesday. There's a point to where sometimes we need to go talk to a person. There's other times where we just need to, it's saying we got to just be tolerant and forbear one another and understand, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I know you probably didn't mean that. There's times, so we need to do both, both ways. It has to work both ways, but it is not going to be easy. And that's why he says endeavoring, or we're going to have to work at that. And working at it doesn't mean that we just avoid each other. We can't do that. So he goes on through the next four through 16, and he kind of gets sidetracked on what he's saying. He's saying, therefore, this is how you should walk. And he starts telling us how God is going to bring us into maturity. We're not going to look at that. But he's basically saying he's going to do it through the body he's placed you in and the gifts that he has given that church. So he, we always like to focus on the fivefold ministry when we read Ephesians chapter 4. Well, that is part of it. But if you read there in verse 16, it's not just the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers are the ones that help each other grow. He's saying there, all of us have gifts in here, and we all, by the power of the Spirit, are going to be helping each other to grow. I don't want to take the time to get into verse 16, but that is what is happening. We should be helping each other to mature as sons and daughters. He's saying, I will take you from children when you first come to the Lord and through this body, through ministry and ministry with each other, there's no, the fivefold ministry is greater than the ministry we have with each other. You don't get that from the Bible. And so we have an influence on each other through the gifts we have that are given to all of us in here that are Christians through the Holy Spirit. That is God's way that he is going to mature all of us through each other. That's what it says. But he goes back, and this is where I want to get to. He picks up after he gets on that little aside and comes back in verse 17 to go back to where he started on the first three verses. And he says in verse 17, this I say, therefore, he's kind of repeating himself at what he said in chapter four, verse one. And let's read that. I want to read verses 17 through 24 this morning. And he says, this I say, therefore, picks it back up and he adds something. And I testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk, there's that word again, we said it's used quite a few times in these few chapters, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Why? Because of the blindness or hardness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. We're just going to work through verses 17 and 19 today. So Paul says at the beginning of that, he says, this I say, therefore, you know, and if he stopped there, you could almost say, well, that's just his opinion. This is what you say, Paul. But he adds something on there. He says, and testify in the Lord. And so he's saying, hey, this is an urgent matter. That's what the word testify means. It's the word for martyr, mature. But in this case, he's saying this is a very urgent matter. I'm saying something urgent in the Lord. He says, I'm telling you something that the Lord has shown me and has given me as an apostle the authority to say that this is what you should do. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is coming as if the Lord himself is talking to you and talking to me. 
In other words, this is not just my opinion, because there's a few times where Paul will say, eh, it's sort of my opinion, but I think I'm speaking of the Lord. He's saying that's not the case here. I'm telling you something important in the Lord, from the Lord. And what does he say? He says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth. He's showing there is something different from the present and from the past and the future. He's saying, before you were children and you walked as children. He said, but from here on out, from henceforth, you're no longer going to walk that way. Look, he says the same thing if you just go back up into chapter 4, verse 14. He's saying, here's the whole reason for the fivefold ministry bringing us to, to growth. The same type of thing. He says that we, same word, henceforth, from here on out, he's saying, we are no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with everyone to doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness where they wait to deceive. In Romans 6, he says, we need to know something. Knowing this, he said, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin be destroyed, that henceforth, from here on out, no longer should we serve sin. And that's the way we lived before, but he says it no longer should be that way in our lives. So, what Paul is telling us is there comes a point in our lives when we quit living like children, and we have to start living like men. Now, I've met a lot of men that still live like children. But, you know, in my own life, this isn't maybe when it happened, but I can remember just for an illustration, Greg and I decided to get an apartment, and I'm going to move out of my house. I think I was about 19 years old, 19 or something like that. And my dad basically told me, I love you, son come by and visit it whenever you want to, but from henceforth, you're on your own. That's what he told me. And I, that didn't bother me at all. I was glad for that. I said, Dad, I appreciate you helping me out all these years. <laughs> I will come and visit you and Mom. <laughs> it wasn't a bad party. He didn't say it like that, but he's basically telling me, all right, you're, you're a man. You pay your bills and all that, and you're on your own. And I was glad he did that. I really was, looking back. And so that's what the Lord is doing here through Paul. He's given us some fatherly counsel through the Apostle Paul. He's saying, look, I've done a great work in you, and you have to start believing it. And from here on out, from henceforth, don't live like you used to live. There's got to be a change. Don't live like the world that's around you, like the other Gentiles. They're still Gentiles, but he said, you can't be like those other Gentiles, those other people you're around. Your master used to be the sin and the devil, but you have a new master now. I'm now your master. And a holy life, he's saying, is to be your identity. And with a holy life comes what? A brand new walk. Because I don't know about you, I didn't know anything about a holy walk before I became a Christian. And so that's what he says in verse 17. This I say, therefore, testifying the Lord, that you henceforth walk six times. In chapters 4 or 5, Paul uses the word walk, and that is what the word is. That's a good translation of the word. Some versions of the Bible will interpret that for you and tell you, well, what he's saying is it means to live. Well, that's not what the word means. The word means to walk. But it's right in the sense that how we walk through this life shows how we live. How you walk throughout the day will exhibit your behavior. So you think about it. That's how we get around this world unless you happen to be in a wheelchair, which no one in here today is. So you get up in the morning and you start walking from the bedroom to the bathroom, down to the breakfast table, out to the car. You're walking around work. And he's saying as you're walking through that day and people are watching your life, that is you. How you walk is you. And so we walk into various circumstances, don't we? Throughout our day, all of a sudden, here we're in a circumstance. I didn't think this would happen. And this person's doing this to me all of a sudden. And so how you're walking shows what's on the inside of you. How we react to the different circumstances that we come into because our walk is us. Isn't it? How we walk through the day is us. And Paul's concerned. He's concerned about how these Ephesians Christians walk. And he's concerned about how we walk. And so he's saying, from now on, people, from henceforth, you don't walk, he says, as the other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. So he had talked about this in a few previous chapters, chapter 2. If you would turn over there, please, Ephesians 2. It's kind of a common thread in this book as far as Paul bringing up how we walk. So look what he says here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, and he says, you 
has he made alive and you were dead in your trespasses and sins where in times past he said you walked and how did we walk here's what it looked like we walked according to the course that the world set forth and how was that set that was set according to the prince of the power of the air the devil the devil is determining how this world operates this is his realm. In 1 John 5, it says the whole world lies in his bosom. They do his bidding. Jesus told the Jews in John 8, you, you are of your father, the devil, and of his lust, you will do. And that's what it says here. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, it's a spirit that now is working. It's energizing the children of disobedience, among whom he says, hey, listen, don't look down on anybody. Because we also were right there with them, among whom we also, Paul includes himself, also had our conversation, our lifestyle in times past. And what did he say he and all these people did? They walked in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Wow. That's what he's saying. That's the way we all walked. And I'd like to get into the but God. Aren't we glad for those two words came in our life? Well, look, he's saying now that that but God has happened and he's come and changed us, which is what we're talking about, our new identity. Look, he uses the word again. Look down in verse 10. He says, now there should be a change for we're his workmanship. He's done a work in us, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should what? There it is again. He's concerned about how we walk, isn't he? It just comes up repeatedly throughout this epistle, this letter. So let's go back over to, to chapter 4. You know, we're going to be looking at it in a sense from a negative point of view, how we walk. And some people are like, I hate hearing the negative. I only want to hear the positive. Oh, well, that's not the reality. And we can't think we're smarter than the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God. So he's saying, look... I'm going to give you a negative. This is how I don't want you to walk. And then we'll be dealing with the positive. This is how you should walk. But first he's saying, listen, this is what you got to quit doing the way you used to be before. You've got to watch that you're not like all these other people that are around you that aren't Christians. It's a snare we easily can fall into. And so he says, first of all, how do these other Gentiles walk? We're not supposed to walk as them. Don't walk as the other Gentiles walk. And what's the first thing he says they walk? In the vanity of their mind. That's King James. And so what does he mean by vanity? So we have people with different translations in here. So if you have an ESV, an NAU, an NIV, a new King James, the word's going to be translated futility, the futility of your mind. And I guess that's probably a little easier for us to understand. But what he means by futility and vanity is it's without use or value. That's how they walk. It's purposelessness. No purpose, no use. And that word for mind there, it doesn't just mean thinking. It means their entire way of thinking, how they look at things, their worldview, their attitude to how they approach that world. And so what Paul's saying is the other Gentiles walk with their mind fixed on worthless, futile things. He's given us insight. You, you want to know how the world operates and why it is? He's telling us right here in a few short verses. He says their outlook on life the other Gentiles, their worldview, it has no real value. It's empty. That's what he's telling us there in that first, first verse. So examples of that, how people look at the worldview, some people view this life. The futility of their mind says that it is just, this life is just to be lived for pleasure, for parties, drugs, drinking, sex, good times, and good friends. And that's what Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry. That's just the way some people approach this entire life. From the time they're young people till the time they die, they're just like, I am happy. I got a good job, a good family, and good friends, and God is good to me. And that's one approach. And there's other people, they say, hey, my approach, my way of thinking, my worldview is I want to make this place a better world. And so they get involved in things like the UN, Earth First, Protect the Planet, all those kind of deals. There's a lot of people like that, but there's some, and this number is ever increasing as the younger generations come up. 
and we're saying we're talking about your purpose in life and there's a lot of people now they view life and especially a lot of young people which is why suicide is skyrocketing because they say life has no purpose at all and you get that when you embrace evolution and that says we're just here by accident there is no God we're just a bunch of cells that cease that happen to come together and when you really believe that and embrace that it will drive you crazy because we're not created to be that way it leaves you with no purpose and so that's why it's it breaks your heart that all these young people a lot of young people suicide rates are just skyrocketing they see no purpose in their life and Paul's saying that the Gentiles, these other Gentiles that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they live in the futility of their minds. That's what it's saying there at the end of verse 17. The other Gentiles walk in the vanity, the futility of their minds. Lives without purpose. Now, they would be offended if you told them that. Somebody that's a tree hugger, if you told them you are wasting your time hugging that tree, <laughs> that's going to do you no eternal... They would be so offended. That wouldn't be the best approach to take if you wanted to witness to somebody. But they think they have a purpose. But we're seeing here God says they have no purpose. Their life is of no value. And so let me ask you, think about, what about you in here? Because I'm going to tell you about for me. What was your purpose of your life before you came to the Lord Jesus Christ? What did you live for? I'll tell you what, I can't tell you. When I, when I asked that at prison one time, I can't tell you what their answers were. <laughs> I had to keep it at prison. <laughs> Well, let me tell you what my, my purpose of my life, I got saved at the age of 21. And at the point I got saved, this was the purpose of my life, to play and watch sports, girls, drugs and alcohol, and watching TV. That was the purpose, and that was what I lived for. Not necessarily in that order. But I'll tell you what happened to me. It, the emptiness of it, one day, I won't want to get into all the circumstances, it all caved in around me. All of that caved in. And I looked around and I asked myself at the age of 17, 17 or 18, what is the purpose of my life now? Because I, I mean, my eyes were just open. That was total vanity. And here I am as a teenager saying, why am I even alive? What am I doing here? What's the purpose of me being alive? And I sat on the edge of my bed one day. I can still remember the bed and where I sat. And I asked myself, what am I here for? Because all of what I thought I was here for, none of that's working for me at all. It's all falling apart. No satisfaction in what I've been pursuing. I realize that it's just like sand through my fingers. Because the one thing I wanted more than anything else, it just fell apart. Ah, I'd lived years for a certain thing, fell apart. And so I started doing at that point what no good Catholic boy does. I started reading my Bible and asking honest questions. And what did I find when I read that Bible? You know, when they came to get Jesus, they sent those guys to get Jesus, arrest him, and they came back, and they're like, well, where is he? You don't have him. And what was their answer to him? They said, never a man has spoken the way this man speaks. And when I read my Bible then, it's just the way God dealt with me. That's the way that Bible came, because I was looking at other things, too, trying to find what is truth. And I'm like, I could never get away from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just witness to me that this is like nothing else I've ever heard, seen, or read. Words of value, words of purpose, words of life is what we have coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? You know, he said he looked at life, looked at his life, and it was a life at a point was spent in pursuing all that the world has to offer. Go back and read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and he begins that in the second verse, and he says this, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's how he starts that book off. Listen to this. I like some of these other translations. The NET says, futile, futile, laments the, te the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile. And that's what we're talking about today. And listen to the NIV. If you have an NIV translation, you got to throw it away. But no, I'm just kidding. But listen, sometimes it's helpful. It's helpful right now. But the NIV translates that this way. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. If you've got an NIV, you can look it up. He says everything is meaningless as he looks around. So in chapter 1, Solomon tells us, he says, I look to the world. 
this empty world for purpose. And he says, I gained more wisdom. And we know that's true. It's what the Bible says. I gained more wisdom than any man on this earth. And yet he still says it was vanity. More wisdom than any man on this earth was vanity. He said, I gave myself over to every pleasure I could. And man, 700 wives, I mean, whatever. And he said, well, that, he said, that is futility. Vanity, emptiness, futility. And he says, I pursued great possessions. He says, I had houses, gardens, servants, cattle, gold. He was a musician, music. I went after all of those things that the world promotes. And at the end of it, he says, I held back nothing. I got all I could, did everything a man could do. And he said it was all meaningless in the end. And he also, the last thing he said, I worked hard. I worked to the bone. I saved. I amassed all this wealth. Like a lot of people think that's what life is all about. Let's just see how much wealth we can amass. And he says it was total futility to do that. And why? You know what he said? He said, because the day I die, that's going to go to some other guy, and he's going to waste it all. And isn't that the way it happens so many times? Somebody works real hard, you're going to bless their children, you're going to bless whoever, and the kids just blow it. It's like, what a waste. And that's what Solomon said. He asked the question, what's life all about? He's saying, what is life all about if it's futile, vanity? Why am I here? Maybe some young people have asked that question. What am I doing here? What's the purpose? Why do we come to church? What's this all about? What should my purpose be? And Solomon answered his own question. He answered that question for all of us. And might not like the answer, but it's a good answer. He answered it by the Spirit of God inspiring him to say this at the end of the book. He says, let us hear, after he goes through all this, the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man sums it up right there in six words. Fear God and keep his commandments. He says, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So fear God and keep his commandments. You're like, man, I thought you'd give us a better answer than that because that just doesn't sound very exciting. And I'll tell you, you think, man, well, what is obeying his commandments? Does that just mean I have to pray and sit in my room and come to church? Oh, no. Obeying his commandments is the great commission, isn't it? Go you into all the world. That's part of his commandments. It covers a whole lot of ground and keep you busier than you'd ever want to be. But doing that might not sound exciting to you, but I'm going to say it's the only way you're going to have a joyful, satisfying, purposeful life. And why is that? Because it's the only way the one that created us and designed us has given us to walk. And that is where we're going to find our satisfaction, not in any other way, because the devil is the one controlling all the other ways, the ways of this world, all the temptations this world puts in front of us to not walk the way of the Lord. And what about the Apostle Paul? He said, I was pursuing a futile life. Read Philippians 3. He says, man, he did everything a Pharisee could do. And he was the top dog of the Pharisees. And you talk about knowing the Bible. Those guys, they say they could do the Old Testament backwards and forwards and start in the middle and quote it all from memory any which way you wanted to do it. Those guys knew the word. They really did. And he goes through and tells about all that, kept the law, he was blameless, perfect in the eyes of the law, as far as that went outwardly. And here's what he said, though, but what things, all those things he did were gain to me. He said, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. And did that bother him that he couldn't be like the rest of the world and have all money, women and all? You think that bothered him? He said, I've suffered the loss of all things that I thought were worth going after in my life. And he says, not a problem because I count them as dung. And that's the word. Dung, cow manure. That's the way I count all that. He says that I may win Christ. And he goes on to say that I may know him. That's all he cared about. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, Philippians chapter 3. That's how he looked at it. So I would ask, we all have to ask ourselves, do we see the Lord Jesus Christ as that valuable to us? We're talking about living our lives with purpose, living our lives with meaning. Do we see the Lord Jesus Christ as that valuable? Is he worth 
more than all we've been striving for, all your possessions, whatever position you want to have or have in this world, or your family even. Paul's laying out here, why do sinners have no purpose in their lives? And he's given us understanding right here in what he's telling us. And we need to know it for ourselves so we don't fall into the snare of going back the way we were, thinking it's okay. But we also need to know as far as how we deal with sinners, whether they're in our family or the ones we run across in the world, we need to have to have an understanding of what's going on inside these people. And that's what we're going to see because he goes on to say in verse 18, he says at the end of there, they walk in the vanity of their mind, the end of, of verse 17, but in verse 18, he says, they have their understanding darkened. Their understanding, how you see things, how you comprehend things, that's what understanding means. It's the Oh, I understand part of us. Oh, I get what you mean. That's the understanding. That's what he's talking about. I see what you mean. And he's saying a sinner's understanding is darkened. They can't understand and comprehend truth. They can't. Because it is like, if you can picture this, it's like their mind has a blanket of darkness over it. Their understanding is darkened. That's what it says there in verse 18. So it's like this, you know, I'm, I'm working construction and I'm in a bathroom and there's no electricity and I'm running a cord in that bathroom. I got a light and I'm trying to paint. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody pulls that cord out. And what happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. I'm looking for Greg Deal playing a trick on me. But <laughs> what I really want to say happens is all of a sudden I'm in total darkness, right, with the tray of paint down on that ground. The next thing you know, I'm stumbling around, tripping over that paint. I am making a mess. Because why? Because my understanding all of a sudden, what I could see is darkened. And that's the picture of sinners. They're stumbling in darkness, trying to comprehend truth, and they just can't quite grasp it. I would not recommend anybody read philosophy. It's not that exciting. But I had to read philosophy. And all the great philosophers, what they do is they just raise questions. And they have some truth. They, they can see some truth, but they just cannot put it all together because of having this darkened understanding. And it's like they are trying to thread a needle in the dark to come to conclusions about life and how man operates and how man is going to have his greatest happiness. They even deal with friendships. And they'll have a lot of things that are true that they say, but they just can't quite put everything together. So I had to read Aristotle. Oh, Aristotle, that sounds deep, doesn't it? Well, he was a brilliant person, and he had some great insights. I had to read this book and do a report at my school. But what I'm looking reading this is, I'm like, man, you are coming sort of close to getting it. But without the revelation of the Bible, you just can't put all the loose ends together, my friend. That's what I'm thinking when I'm reading that. He comes up with all the wrong answers, ultimately, all the wrong answers. Or he just says, I just can't give you an answer, is what you get when you read that book. So, for instance, he couldn't understand how he thinks everything's just a matter we need to be better educated. And that's what these politicians that are on the liberal side of things think. It's just a matter of more knowledge and everybody will be good. That's what Aristotle said. So he can't understand how somebody can know that this act I'm getting ready to do is evil and that they go on and do it anyways. He couldn't get that. And guess what Paul does? He explains by the Spirit of God in three short verses what I read of Aristotle couldn't explain in 300 pages. And I'm telling you, for me, it was very frustrating to read. It really was. I tried to be as nice as I could in my little paper, but whatever. <laughs> Who is the one that's brought this darkness on mankind? Who has brought this darkness? And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, here's what's happened. When we sinned to the devil and made him our master, it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. So Satan has brought mankind under darkness, and he keeps them in darkness. And you know, John 3, it says, here's why judgment is going to come upon men, because light has come. And men love darkness rather than light. That's why they'll go to hell. Because when light came, they're like, we want nothing to do with that. We like our darkness right here. It says, because their deeds were evil. That's what it says in John 3.20, I believe it is. He's brought darkness and keeps people blinded. And only the Spirit of God can bring light. The light that will break through that darkness. 
We need to understand that. They're the enemies of our souls. So here's the thing we need to understand because we've all fallen into this trap. We think if we can just present a good enough argument to our Muslim friend, our Catholic, this person we work with, that why, and why aren't we get frustrated? Why aren't they getting it? Why don't they get it? Because their understanding's darkened. And we're not the ones that are going to undarken it by having a good argument. So I'm not saying you don't have to have a good argument, but the way that it works is it's truth, scripture, the truth of the Bible, plus the spirit of God is what can break through that darkness. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is saying. And that's why it's very important that we pray when we witness to people. And we're not trusting on our reasoning abilities, because you can read books and understand Catholicism, Muslims, you can have that stuff all down backwards and forwards. And I'm saying if the Spirit of God isn't penetrating the darkness of that heart with His truth, you'll get nowhere. You'll probably just end up in an argument and a bad feeling between you and that person. So that's why it's critical we understand what Paul's saying there. He is doing us a great service. And it's not just the world, it's even us. Only the Spirit of God can give us revelation and help us talk to a brother and sister that they can receive something. We're totally dependent on the Spirit of God, more than we, I think, have ever realized. So truth has to be made alive by the Spirit of God. And so why, he goes on to say, why are men in this darkness, verse 18, their understanding's darkened, and they're alienated, he goes on to say, from the life of God. And what does it mean to be alienated? It means you're excluded from something. You're separated. You're cut off from something. And he's saying all sinners are cut off from God, and thus they sit in darkness. That's what's happened. So, you know, you see these movies where these astronauts, you know, they get out, they're on those space probe damn things, and what do they have keeping them going? There's this tube there, right? And they're out doing those spacewalks, and if something ever happens, that tube gets cut, they've been excluded, alienated from what? Life. And what happens to those poor men? I'd hate to think the thought of it happening. They're cut off, and they will die. And that's what sinners are to God. We've got to see that they are cut off and dead. That's what it's saying here. Look, verse 18, our understanding is darkened. They're alienated. They're cut off from what? The life of God, his life. They're not just sick. They are spiritually dead as can be. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in trespasses and sin. And I'm telling you, hopefully nobody in this room would watch this show, The Walking Dead. But I know about it because these guys at prison that come to our meetings, they like The Walking Dead. I'm like, what is wrong with you guys? But really, it's a picture of the world. They're walking around, and they're functioning, and they're eating, and they're partying, and they're doing all their stuff. But they are The Walking Dead. And that was all of us before we were Christians. That's the picture God paints, cut off from the life of God. And that's serious. Dead in their trespasses of sins, no spiritual life. And he goes on to say it's because, verse 18, he goes on to say, cut off from the life of God, alienated, because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of blindness, he goes on to say, the blindness of their heart. And that ignorance, just it simply just means a lack of knowledge. And you say, man, how can God treat sinners that way just because they have a lack of knowledge? He's going to cut them off and leave them in darkness? You know, one time, <laughs> we, we go, when we're in prison, these guys are not allowed to leave that chapel when it's dark. And so this one time, this guy is like acting like he's just going to walk on out in that yard and all that other. Now, thankfully, they don't shoot him anymore for that kind of stuff. But so I had to go out and get this guy. I said, hey, wait a minute. You know, don't you know, you can't be doing that. You've got to stay inside the chapel till they let, you, let us release y'all. And he's like, well, I, I didn't know. I'm new here. So I didn't get on him about it and, you know, yell at him, you idiot. You know, don't you know the rules? He didn't know the rules. He's in ignorance. So it wouldn't have been fair for me to get on his case. Well, let me ask you, are sinners, is there lack of knowledge because of that? Is it in that same way? They just don't know and they're being punished for something they don't know? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. Well, what I want to talk about here, he doesn't say they're just ignorant, but they're also blind. They have on their eyes, they have spiritual cataracts. And cataracts are something that harden in your eye you cannot see. It starts taking your vision away. And that's what he's saying there, because of the blindness of their heart in verse 18. So once again, it's blindness in King James, other translations, ESV, NAU, NIV, they'll use hardness. Like a stone, that's literally what the word means, become like a stone. 
Let's raise the question there. Who is the one that has hardened these sinners' hearts that they can't see and that they have a lack of knowledge and they're cut off from God? I mean, it just all goes together, doesn't it? Who hardened their hearts? So the question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Because we read about that, right? Well, the Bible says God hardens it, but if you go back and read the accounts, you know who else it says hardens it? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the Bible presents it both ways. So sinners, they're said to be ignorant, they have a lack of knowledge, they're blind and have a hardened heart, given up to sin. But I would ask the question, is God the one that's at fault for that? Is he the one that made them that way? How can they be blamed for their condition, some people would say. It was these poor, miserable, wretched sinners. That's what people would say. Well, if you put something there and turn over to Romans 1, Romans 1, Paul is basically dealing with in a little greater detail of what he's dealing with here in Ephesians 4. And he answers both questions. Because look what it says here in Romans 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, the King James will say, who hold the truth and unrighteousness. The word literally means they suppress the truth. They put it down. They don't want to hear it. They're actively opposing it. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness because, it says, that which may be known of God it uses the word manifest. It means it's saying it is plain to them. In other words, they can clearly see things about the Lord that they don't want to see is what he's saying. It's plain to them, manifest to them, because God has shown it unto them plainly. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, they are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead and so that's why he says, these people, sinners, we don't have to feel sorry for any of them. They are without excuse. And look what he says, because when they knew God, they knew him, they chose to glorify him, not his God, and they were not thankful. And here's our words again, futile, because they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So who are the ones that are accountable for this? Did God do that to them? It says they, they just, because of their wickedness, they suppress the truth. They, they can clearly see it, and we don't want to see it or acknowledge it. We're unthankful. We don't want to acknowledge this God that's going to make demands on our lives. And so he goes on to say, so is there a lack of knowledge? Whose fault is it? It's their own. And here's where we can see, so who hardened their hearts? We look on in verse 23, it says, They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds. So they create these things to worship that they know aren't God. And so as a result of their rebellion, then, verse 24, God gave them up. And that's that judicial hardening. So he's just giving people up to where they're already headed. He's not heading them that way. That's what's going on. And you look over in verse 26, and he's saying, because they changed, verse 25, the truth of God into a lie, and they worshiped and served the Creator more than the Creator who is blessed forever. As a result of that, verse 26, it says, for that reason, for this cause, then God gave them up. He gave them over, hardened them into their vile affections. And it goes on to talk about homosexuality. So look what it says in verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So they started at first, if you want to say. They started to fight, if you want to put it that way. As a result of that, God gave them over. There's three times it said that. They don't want anything to do with God. They reject God. God says, I reject you. I've given you over. And you think that's not fair? All I'm saying is it says in Romans 1 with what we just read, he doesn't make men sinners. Never has, but he will give them over to the sin they have chosen. And as a result, go back to Ephesians chapter 4. As a result of that, something else goes on to happen. Verse 19, who past feeling have given themselves over. They've done it. Given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And that word there, being past feeling, is it means they became calloused. They became hardened. The NAU says they have become callous, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
I don't like the NIV here again. I keep quoting and saying it's no good, but it says they have lost all sensitivity. That's what happens when you have a callous place on your body. You can touch it and you can't feel anything. And that's what he says has happened to these people. They've given themselves over to sin. They've become calloused, insensitive. Given themselves to sensuality so as to indulge themselves in every kind of impurity with continual lust for more. I think that's a pretty good way of describing what's happening. That word lasciviousness means moral corruption and is pointing to sexual sins. And it says at the end of that, with greediness, the sinner can't get enough of their sin and they have no shame anymore, have to have more. And there's a progression going on here in verse 19. Sinners become past feeling, they become hardened and insensitive to what? To the voice of God, to the voice of conscience, which is God speaking inside. Because look, look what happens. Young kids are so sensitive when you confront them on wrongs they've done. They break down crying. And guess what happens to people the older they get? And the more they just keep ignoring their conscience, which is the voice of God, they get hardened in their sin, and they can lie straight in your face. I knew a guy that he lived in fornication. He had no problem with it. He thought everything was good. And a married man living with some other woman because they get a calloused heart. They ignore their conscience. And that sin leads to more and grosser sin. And we know in 2 Timothy it says evil men and seducers will grow from bad to worse. That's the way it works. And so when sinners get to the point of what we have here in verse 19, there is no shame in what they're doing. They have hardened themselves, and they have a, a security that is false. There is no fear of God before them, but they really don't fear God. They don't fear the consequences of what they're doing. They just move on in it. So... What we've just looked at in these verses here, it may be a picture that Paul's painting of Gentile sinners in ancient Ephesus, but I think it's also, it's a picture of sinners in Shelbyville, Kentucky. It's a picture of sinners in Louisville, in Chicago, in Indianapolis. Pick your town <laughs> over in England because it's describing this is how sin works in a man. This is how sinners operate. We're seeing the inside of how a sinner operates God's telling us through Paul, the center of all generations, the Word of God, how their mind operates, his comprehension. He's in darkness. He's been cut off from the life of God. He has a heart that is hardened in sin, which just leads to a greedy desire. I have to have more and more and more. Even this person that you would look at, well, man, they just love art. But that is their passion. They're driven. They, that's all they're consumed with it. It doesn't always necessarily have to be a sexual thing. So I had lunch, hope you don't mind me saying, with Michael Webb the other day. And one thing he's saying, so he's got a perspective. He's with the worst of the world because we kind of lose our perspective. We're with each other so much, and we work with each other and all that, and you fellowship and you go home. We're, we're not dealing with a lot of the way the world is. So we'll see some things on the news. But I would say if you're a policeman, from what he's telling me, you've got an inside scoop on what's going on with how this world, and he's saying... You just, he goes, I could talk to you about tribulation and what's coming and all that, but he's saying this world is rebelling more and more and more against authority. And people, this is the way it's becoming. They want unrestrained freedom and not to do what's right, but to indulge their flesh. That's what's happening. This guy is speeding and he's setting up a policeman that just got, this is terrible. But here is the thought process of a sinner. I'm going to speed. This policeman dares to pull me over, and he kills him. And that's what this world's coming to. And it's getting worse. If I want to riot and loot, we saw all that on TV, don't try to protect the property, a policeman. All they're doing, they're trying to protect the property of law-abiding businessmen. And they're going to get shot in the process. Because of what's happening. We'll kill you. And our society is now, never before in the history of the world, ever before, homosexuality has gone on. It has been unheard of that same-sex marriage is legalized by a state. Never before. You don't realize how terrible that is. It is bad as can be. And people are like now, hey, you're not going to tell us who to marry. You know, when I grew up as a kid, I'm not that old. Man, you did not live with somebody. 
that was like, you didn't do that. Now it's like, don't ever say anything that you, I mean, how many of us have everybody in here knows somebody that lives with somebody and thinks they just brazenly do it. It's almost like it's an accepted thing. Don't tell me who I have to marry, whether it's a man or a woman, I'll marry whoever I want to. Who I live with, what drugs I can smoke or snort, that's all going to be legalized shortly. It already is out in Colorado. That's great. Who I can live with, how many babies I can abort. I just saw a graph on the number of people killed in all our wars combined. It's a little sliver like that. And the rest of the pie painted in red is the number of abortions that have taken place in this country. Unbelievable. That's the world we're living in. If you haven't heard this, God has what's called restraining grace that he puts on the world. It's not saving grace. And that restraining grace is being lifted off of this country and off of this world. Because what that grace is, it's not going to save a person, but it's going to keep people from being as evil as they're capable of being. And he's slowly lifting that off. Because what that grace does, we're talking about rebellion in society, that grace will bring a fear of God, a fear of authority. And it's being lifted. Because men, all of us, are born into this world with the nature of the devil. And without God's restraining grace, this world would be utterly chaotic. And everyone would be literal devils walking around. And what's going to happen is we're talking about the tribulation. And that's why his judgment, you read those judgments, why are they so bad? Because his grace has been lifted and men are giving themselves over to whatever they want, unrestrained. And his judgment is going to fall. And that's what's happened in Noah's day. It says in Noah's day, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God said, my restraining grace, my spirit is not always going to strive with man. And so at one point it was lifted. And guess what happened? The rain came. Seven billion people, they estimate, were on this earth. That's a lot of people drowned in that flood. And out of that seven, Jesus says, few are saved. Eight people made it out. Now that should put a pause on our thinking. Seven billion and eight made it and it's happening again as we sit in this room his restraining grace and the thought of every man's heart will be evil continually that's what's taking place every man we're seeing it again the book of judges and we need to watch in here it's every man does what is right in his own eyes the standard of the bible you talk to people the standard of the Bible that that is going to determine, we're talking about this whole thing, is how we walk. Paul keeps bringing that up. The standard of the Bible is going to determine how I walk through this life. Are you kidding me? The world would say there is no way that's going to happen. We just need to make sure that's not happening with us. The Bible is to determine how we deal with each other, how we deal with the world, how we deal with our ethics, how we deal in our business practices. This is where we go to find out how we should do things. And we've been well taught about how we should ethically deal with each other, how we should trust the Lord for whatever, how we should walk through this world. Because he's saying the world doesn't do that. They walk in the purposelessness of their mind. They don't have the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word guiding their steps. And so Paul says, all of us, we used to walk and think and give ourselves over to sin just like all of the other Gentiles, just like all the sinners around us. But he says, henceforth, back to where we started from, henceforth, no longer, no more can we as Christians live like that if we want to make it. We can't live like that anymore. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, that the ones that walk like that will experience the wrath of God. It's over there in chapter 5. So he's warning us. Back to the beginning of what we said, by the power and authority that he has from the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should change the purpose of our lives once and for all. And I've quoted this verse several times. This is chapter 5, verse 8. We were sometimes in the past darkness. But Paul says, but now, today, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, he says. You were darkness, but now, today, we're light in the Lord, and we should walk as children of light. 
And so how, as children of light, do we see to have our understanding not darkened but enlightened? How do we see where to walk? It's a song we sing. It's a good song. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and it's a light unto my path. Children of light, they walk by the light of God's word. It's got to determine how we walk in this world, right? We are new creations in Christ. We have new identities. We're completely changed is what Paul is telling us. It's what the Lord is telling us. Completely changed. Our past is behind us. And we're now holy sons of God, adopted into his family with a new father. And we should be walking in a totally different direction than we do. How? By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us your truth here in this word, that we can have understanding that even the greatest philosophers in the world throughout time do not have. We can see how sin operates, and so thus we can avoid it. Paul says that we're not to walk in that way, and we just thank you, Lord, for this revelation that you've given to him, and thus you've given to us to help us through, to help us to walk with you more closely and to learn to trust you and walk with you and walk in the light of your word. And we just thank you that you've spoken to us about that today and that you'll continue to speak to all of us. And for being here with us today and blessing us with your presence. We just thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.